I'm happy to be here today with uh, hundreds of people that are not here, and <laughs> but perhaps viewing us on, online right now and later on a video. So I'm going to talk about motorcycles today and, and my experience with them and uh, all sorts of stuff. But how did that come about? Why am I talking about motorcycles today? I haven't ridden one in a couple years. And I haven't really thought about one in a couple years, but son of a gun, I got an email from Bruce, who lives someplace in a rural area. And he said, I've got a podcast, This Motorcycle Life. And a lot of people want to know if riding a motorcycle and meditation are similar. And I found you on YouTube, and then I went to your web page and I thought you know what you're you're the guy that could probably answer that question motorcycles and meditation so we had a wonderful conversation on the phone and it's posted on his podcast now thismotorcyclelife.com and and I thought okay I'm going to use that as my springboard I'm going to start there so he said how did you start riding a motorcycle? And my answer was, well, when I was 14 and lived in Phoenix, Arizona, and it was the early 60s, you could actually get a motorcycle license for five, for 50 cc's or less. So I had a Honda 50. My mom bought me a Honda 50 for my birthday when I was a freshman in high school. And seven months later, she took it back and sold it. <laughs> because I sort of stopped going to high school and just started to ride in Phoenix, Arizona. And it was so much fun. I had that sense of freedom that I'd never had before. And the sense of being able to go any place I wanted to, any time I wanted to. At least that's what I thought until it was taken away. But that's how it all started. And I still have that sort of old, faded motorcycle license from the early 1960s. Wow. So then there was a long period of time when I didn't ride a motorcycle. And then we come into the 1980s. And I was between cars. My old car died. I didn't have enough money to buy a new car. And one day I was on the bus going to work. And I looked out the window, and there was a guy riding a motorcycle. And I thought to myself, you know what? That might be the way I need to go, cost-effective transportation. So I went to this motorcycle dealership in Marina del Rey and looked at all the used motorcycles they had. And I had a MasterCard with enough credit on it to buy a motorcycle. So I got a little 250 Kawasaki, and that was my transportation now. And I had to relearn all the stuff I had forgotten or never known when I had my first motorcycle. And one of the first things that came to mind was mind. I need to be aware, because a lot of car people don't see motorcycle people. A lot of truck and bus people don't see motorcycle people. So if you're not aware, and they're not aware, a really bad accident could happen. Or maybe even a small accident. 
But when you're on a motorcycle, a small accident hurts a lot. So you don't want to even have a small one. But that's how I started riding again. And for seven years, a motorcycle was my only form of transportation. So you might say, well, what did you do when you went to the grocery store? How did you bring the groceries back? I had this huge backpack, and I had bungee cords. And you just sort of figure it out. It's like riding a horse. Everybody else has a wagon. You've got a horse. So you got your saddlebags. you got your bungee cords. What do you do in the rain? Well, you get wet. <laughs> That's how it sort of works on a motorcycle. How about a really hot, sunny day? What happens then? You get really hot on those sunny days. Man, because there's no place to hide when you're on a motorcycle. I really like my car now at my current age because I have air conditioning, I have a radio, I have a heater, I can roll down the windows and more importantly I can roll them up and on a motorcycle you can't do anything but either wear more clothing or wear less clothing but because of the problem of an accident and possible death you wear a lot of clothing most of the time sometimes leather, you have your helmet on and it's not comfortable, but when you're young, it's invigorating. You feel like a real man. <laughs> you're just out there, and you're putting up with all this stuff, and you're not complaining, and people look at you like, what are you doing? <laughs> Didn't you ever see that movie with Marlon Brando? <laughs> I'm Marlon, man. <laughs> I'm riding the motorcycle. Okay, so I got a car. After seven years, I got a car. So now I had a motorcycle and a car, and I had to get insurance for both. So it just kept getting more expensive, but I still kept the motorcycle. And then my father passed away, and it was sad to see him go, and he left a house behind, and each of the kids got a little money. And what did I do? I bought a brand-new motorcycle. <laughs> Whoa, it looked like a big old... Harley Davidson, but it was a Suzuki, so it was like half the price. And it had a radiator and a shaft drive, so it was really up to date. And it was so comfortable, and it looked so good. It was black and white, I felt like a cop. And I just ride around, and I had this big smile on my face. Nobody could see it, because I had my helmet on. But I was just really living the dream now. I had the perfect motorcycle, the one I've always wanted. But there was something missing. I was 52 years old, and I wanted to know if I still had it. Do I have it? I'm middle age if I live to 100. Do, do I have it? Could I do something remarkable even at 52? And I said, yes, I can. I can go visit my mom in Wisconsin and ride the motorcycle. 5,000 mile round trip. Seven days to get there, seven days with mom, and seven days to come back. This was going to prove that I still had it, that I could go out there and meet any problem with a kind of joy and happiness, and off I went. What do you take when you're driving seven days and going 2,500 miles? 
I didn't have a cell phone. People freaked out about that. You don't have a cell phone? What happens if? I don't know, man. I don't know. We'll have to see if it happens, and then I'll figure it out. Okay. You really should get a cell phone. Oh, I know. I know. So then I'm thinking, okay, what do I need? I'm going to get a tent, and I'm going to camp out next to the motorcycle. It's just going to be so cool. Well, most of the time I got a motel room. Because camping next to your motorcycle after riding it for six hours is really the last thing you want to do. <laughs> you want to take a shower, get some food, watch a little TV, you know, and then back on the motorcycle. I found, about, I found out about KOAs, Campgrounds of America. And they have these little cozy cabins that you can rent, which is like a mattress and a bunk bed and a chair and a table. And I stayed in a couple of those. And I realized as I was traveling that my new home was the road. And all the other people on the road were my family. We were doing the same thing. Some had four wheels, some had eight wheels, these big old RVs. Some had two wheels. But we all had that sort of in common that we were on the road going someplace. And that we weren't there yet. And that's why we're on the road. So how does it feel not to be there? Well, if you're a Buddhist, it makes perfect sense because we're all in a state of becoming and we never become anything. <laughs> we just keep becoming. You know, every day you're becoming something new. You, you get one challenge figured out and the next one shows up. When is it going to all stop and I can reach that plateau and just sort of enjoy my life? No, no, there is no plateau. You're never going to stop. You're just going to keep going and going until you can't go anymore. Whoa. So on the road, that became very apparent to me, that I was just going to keep going. And even when I got to my destination, I had to go back. And when I got back to the meditation center after 21 days on the road, it's like I never went anywhere. How weird is that? So I'm on the road, and I just have this romantic idealism about how cool it is. And, you know, and some of the places, like up in Montana, there's like nothing. There's nothing. You look around, there's no cars, there's no motorcycles. Once in a while, there's a moose someplace. And you just go, wow, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Hey, man, you're a Buddhist. <laughs> That's the place. That's where you're going. Nowhere. Okay, I got it. I'm learning all the time. Now, at the time I did it, this is 2001, they, everybody was working on bridges and roads. And, you know, sometimes those roads were so uneven because they were repaving them and working on the bridges and stuff that you, like this, you had to be so aware all the time or you could just crash. So I would go up on the thing and I'd go down on the thing and I'd stay in this and do this and I'm going, wow, this is really... This really requires a lot of attention to stay alive. And it's not like you've got four wheels, so there's a little balance that goes into it. Not much, so You'd be surprised. You're going 80 miles an hour, which was my preferred speed to go. That the engine and the wheels, you know, are turning in a way that's like a gyroscope. And you feel so stable, you know. It really is an interesting thing to experience, that on two wheels you can feel stable and solid. And then the rain started, Iowa. Whoa! 
Iowa, man, rained all day. And I don't care how many clothes you're wearing, when you're in the rain all day at 80 miles an hour, you're going to get wet. And I couldn't believe how wet I was. And it was cold, and it was uncomfortable. And I looked at all the cars and envied them. I bet they had their heaters on. And here I was, just rolling right along. And I found this motel that had a washer and dryer, and I was really excited about it. You got a dryer? Oh, man, okay, thanks. I'm taking a room. Now, I said to her, because, you know, I was born in Iowa City, Iowa. And, and rarely do I ever go to Iowa. So I was sort of excited to be able to say, you know what? I was born in Iowa. She said, me too. <laughs> go figure. <laughs> There we were, together in Iowa, at a motel. Wow. So what did I learn about this uh, rain and this cold and this discomfort? That, you know, you're only comfortable for a certain length of time. And all you got to do is sit in meditation. 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 45 minutes. And you start to get uncomfortable. And on a motorcycle, you might need a little more time two hours, three hours, but you start to get uncomfortable. And there's no way to get rid of the discomfort. There's no, nothing to turn on or turn off. There's no window to roll up or roll down. And, and, and I thought to myself at a certain point, as I was riding my motorcycle, this is how I can become free. This is my lesson to freedom. If I can figure out how to be comfortable in the discomfort, I'll always be free from suffering. Wow, that's what the Buddha was talking about. He said, you know, I'm going to tell you ad nauseum why you suffer. And you suffer in so many different ways. I'm going to list them and name them. You're going to feel so bad after you hear what I say. <laughs> but I'm not going to stop there. Then I'm going to tell you how to end your suffering. I'm going to tell you what I learned, what I did to end my suffering. And one of the key words he used, and one of the key words I used, was acceptance. How can I accept things just the way they are without wanting to change them? How can I do that? As I'm riding through rain, and it's hot, and it's dry, and there's no place to find comfort, how can I say, this is exactly the way it's supposed to be? Well, in most people's minds, this was not the way it was supposed to be. But when you're on a motorcycle, it's sort of what you signed up for. Okay, this is what it's about to ride a motorcycle. This is why most people don't ride a motorcycle. <laughs> because it hurts a lot after long periods of time, and you could die quickly. And they don't want to die. You know, I, I had a friend who had a motorcycle accident, and he was plugged into the wall for a long time at the hospital. And I'm going, oh, man, you know. I went to visit him, and I felt so bad for him. But most people that ride a motorcycle don't have a terrible accident where they get laid up for a long time. Most people don't do that. The, one of the ways you do that is you're not paying attention, and you're a little too cavalier, and you're sort of showing off, and you know, and then all of a sudden, bang. 
Or the other way is you're not paying attention at all, and the car in front of you has stopped, and then you run right into it, and bang. And if you want to see actual footage of that, go to Dash Cam Video Russia. Man, they have the best accidents. They don't even slow down. Two cars have crashed, and they just run right through them when they crash. And then a car is stopped, and a motorcycle's not slowing down, and he runs into the back of the car. And every time he ran into the back of the car, he got up and brushed himself off. Like, yeah, just another day in Russia, man. You know? <laughs> Unbelievable. So I never had an accident, but I tell you, it's always going to happen, sooner or later. But see, if you're a Buddhist, you can say to yourself, maybe not in this lifetime. <laughs> so that was, that was my, my way out. So far, so good. Did I ever fear that I was going to die in a motorcycle? Never did. Never had that thought. Never came. Never had that thought at all. Okay. I had more, more thoughts about dying and the fear of death in my meditation practice. As I sat there hour after hour on retreat, and the knees started to hurt, and the back started to hurt, and the ankles didn't move anymore, and you thought to yourself, you know, they're going to have to call 911. I'm not going to be able to get up. This could be my last hour on earth. This darn meditation. So how is meditation like motorcycle riding? Well, it's, it, in this way, you create a cocoon of awareness on the motorcycle. And when you're sitting in meditation, you're creating a cocoon of awareness around you. And you become so sensitive to sounds and feelings and sight when you're in meditation because you've got nothing else to do except think about the monkeys. So, so there you are, just sitting there going, wow, wow, okay. Look at all this stuff that I wasn't aware of before. Look at how my body feels, all the sensations of being alive, mentally and physically. Wow, no wonder I'm screwed up. There's just too much to keep track of. I don't know how people do it. And then we become aware of self, our best friend, most of the time. But self can also be a stern master. You should be this way. You went to school. You have peer groups. You work. Your boss tells you how to be. Your wife tells you how to be. Your kids tell you how to be. I don't want to be that way anymore. Self says, no, you have to, because I'm in charge. Until you meditate long enough to realize that self is simply a tool and not a master and you're able to use that tool to have a much better life and have something to say about other people's lives that will encourage them and make them feel even better about themselves. This sort of selfless awareness of what you're dealing with and what everybody's dealing with. So meditation became a really important symbol for me as I rode the motorcycle because there's not much difference when you're on the road for six or seven hours or sitting in a zendo for six or seven hours. You sort of have the same position. You're not moving around a lot. There are times when you have to stop to go to the bathroom, both in meditation and on the motorcycle. You know? And then there's always like a tea break 
And so there's always like a food break on the motorcycle, a whole lot. But while I was going through certain parts of the country, a book came to mind, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Robert Piercing. That book took me a couple years to read because I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. It is a very confusing book, and it took over 20 publishers saying no before the first publisher said yes to get the darn thing published. 1970s, I was in Westwood Village walking by a bookstore, and in the window was that book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I hadn't studied meditation. I wasn't sure what Zen was, and I thought to myself, why would anybody write that book? And what's, how are they connected? Zen and the art of motorcycle, how are they connected? Now, at the end of my interview for the podcast, he said about the book, what is your take on it? What do you think it means? And I said something that sort of startled me, and I'll get to that, because I couldn't understand why I would say it. And yet it just came out, and I, I said it, it with authority, so he said, hmm, but that's all he said. <laughs> I'm going, wow. So I've been on YouTube looking at book reviews of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and one person came to the same conclusion I did. But before I get to that, he's got Chris on the back. Chris is his son, and they're going to California from Minnesota. That's a long ride. And then there's John and his wife, and they're riding the BMW, you know? And he's got a Honda. And the BMW is sort of like this Mercedes of motorcycles. So John and Sylvia rode it like it was a Mercedes. And they never did anything to it. If something went wrong, they would take it to dealership, dealership would fix it but not Robert Piercek. He always fixed his own. And he got into this thing of classical and romantic. What is classic and what is romantic? And he said something I thought was really interesting about the motorcycle. He says, when you have a romantic vision of your motorcycle, you're looking at the lines and the aesthetics, and it's just a beautiful form. And you really don't care too much for how it works or why it's working, but it's brings you to a place of connection to the motorcycle, which is beautiful. And if you have a classic view of the motorcycle, you know about the valves and the pistons and the, and, and the, and the chain or the drive shaft and the wheels, either the spoked wheels or not. And you have a much more realistic way of looking at that machine. It's not just something beautiful that takes you to altered states of consciousness. It's just simply a machine that's designed to take you from point A to point B. Okay, so when I read that the first time, I, I didn't know, I, I didn't get it, I don't know what they're talking about. I didn't know all the Western philosophy, I didn't know the Eastern philosophy, I just liked the motorcycle and the motorcycle trip. And I bought this book, Guide to the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and it was all about that book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Mate. It was a guide, and it broke everything down. So I learned a lot about Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy, a lot about motorcycles, a lot about the trip, 
about who these people were, why they were doing it. And then they made it to California. Now, I said that, the, that Bruce, the podcast guy, said, well, what is your take on it? What did it mean to you? And I said, relationship. And that was it. There was a silence, and they go, yeah, okay. <laughs> and, and I didn't know what it meant either. You know, I just said it. I don't know where that answer came from. And then I thought hard and deep on that for a couple days after I said it. And I'm going, of course, of course, relationship. Robert Pierzig went to a mental hospital because he had a nervous breakdown trying to figure out what quality was. He couldn't define quality. And he was teaching in Montana, Bozeman, Montana, at the, at the college there, university. And one of his um, co-workers said, I hope you're teaching quality. And he said, yes, I am. And then he, it's, he got stuck. Well, what is quality? How can you teach quality? What the heck is it? So he went to the mental hospital. He got electroshock therapy. And in the story, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, his old self keeps coming back and getting his attention. His old self is Phaedrus. So Phaedrus talks to Robert and says, you've been down this road before. You go right over there, and the motel's just down the street. And his son Chris said, how did you know that the motel was there? And Robert said, well, I just sort of knew. But he was having a dialogue with his old self and the new self. And that was the first relationship. Then he was having a dialogue with his son, who was giving, who had symptoms of mental illness as well, and Robert was feeling a, a little uneasy about that, thinking he may have been one of the reasons that his son has the beginnings of mental illness. So it was a really interesting relationship until they got to the West Coast, and then all the issues were resolved between him and his son. He had the relationship with the motorcycle, that he could tell how it was going by the way it sounded. He could tell if it needed to be adjusted or just left alone. He knew that because of his relationship to the motorcycle. John and Sylvia, who had the, had the BMW. That was another interesting relationship, even more confusing than the one with Phaedrus or the son or the motorcycle, because we have two people who are married, and they have that third perspective of marriage, and, and they would be discussing certain things or having fun, and Chris would come in and have a stomach ache because, and blah, 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 and they go, wow, okay, relationship. And then, then this thing about quality. See, when I, I read the book, I, I missed the point. I, I, didn't, I didn't get quality. And then I thought to myself, well, how about this? How about if John took his BMW to the parking lot and took it all apart? And how about if Robert took his Honda to the parking lot and took it all apart? And then you gave them both the magnifying glass. And you said to them, find me the quality of your motorcycle. In what part or piece does it exist? And I imagined in my mind of them going to each piece and part of the motorcycle, looking for the quality and coming up empty-handed. None of these pieces hold the quality of the motorcycle. 
None of the parts are big enough to hold the quality of the motorcycle. And yet somehow, when you put the 10,000 pieces together and create the motorcycle, quality is evident. And I thought to myself, wow, maybe that's what he's talking about. But Zen took me into a different direction. So I'm reading the book like for the third time. I've got it on audio tape, which is really good. And then I'm thinking, maybe it's not the quality that is the big issue in this book. Maybe it's the sense of self that's the big issue in this book. That if you were to take me or Reverend Bonnie apart to our 10,000 pieces and try to find Reverend Bonnie or try to find me, you couldn't do it. It doesn't exist in that way. And yet when the 10,000 pieces come together, this sense of self becomes recognizable. You can recognize Reverend Bonnie down the street. You go, wow, yeah, that's Reverend Bonnie. I see herself. Okay, cool. And there's Kusala. Kusala, move back a few aisles, man. You're too close. Okay. <laughs> so self comes, becomes aware, moves back. And they, but how about that? How about if that the whole thing, he's talking about the quality, he's really talking at some level about the self and that it's really not there in the way we think it is. And I went, wow, you know, after years of meditation, I have come to the same conclusion that myself is not there in the way I thought it was. That all these decades that I have lived, seven so far, I have been a different self in each decade. I have been a, a different self in each half decade. I've been a different self each month of those seven decades. I've been a different self each morning when I got up. And some days I get up and go, wow, feels good to be me. And some days I get up and go, wow, what happened to me? <laughs> Where did that come from? So struggling, <laughs> struggling with the idea of, okay, I am not an event. I am not an event. I am a process, and I experience that process in a really unique way after 21 days of writing. I experience that process in a really unique way of meditation, in relationship with people and things and little critters that this other sense of self arises and feeds the cats, which I've been doing for over 25 years now. How could you feed cats for 25 years? Well, we keep getting more. And I think we're getting close to the end of my talk. So, <laughs> what have I learned? I was gonna go into seven, yeah, well, anyway. <laughs> what have I learned? I have learned this. Don't take yourself too seriously. Set yourself some goals to make but, you know, if you're just good enough in making those goals, that might be okay. And one day you're going to die. And that should be your co-pilot. That should signal to you that this day, the first day of our life, is also the best day of our life. Enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Have a, have a wonderful Sunday.